of the Lord Jesus Christ, to know in Him the salvation that we have come to know, those of us who have trusted Him as our Savior, as our Lord, we rejoice together in the truths of these songs and the word that has been written and that we have been privileged to read already today. We rejoice together that the gospel enterprise is one in which we are privileged to participate with the risen Christ. And by your spirit, I pray that you would continue to teach us your word and fit us for this task, this joyful task, this challenging and risky task of taking the message of Christ crucified and risen throughout this world and standing as children of the promise in a lost and dying culture. We thank you for the privilege to gather here today in the name of Christ, praying in behalf of those who do not know him and asking that those who do, that this would be a time of feeding upon the word, that those who are unbelievers would come to recognize this and know that they must trust Christ as Savior. For those of us who have come to this reality, we praise you for the privilege to look to your word and we do so knowing that we do not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now as we look to this written word, help us to understand and to grow in its light. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today we conclude our series through the book of Colossians. It's been my hope as we've worked our way through this book. It's been my persistent prayer. Let me try it here. Not working. There it is. There it is. Whoa. (laughs) Power. It's not in me. We all know that. All right, let's start over. It's been my hope, it's been my persistent prayer through this series that God would use this book to deepen our faith in Him, to deepen our walk with Christ as a church. That's been my desire, my hope from the beginning. I wonder, is He answering that prayer? Is He answering that prayer in your heart as we have studied through the text of Colossians and come to the final passage today? As many times as I've read this book, this trip through Colossians has revealed a clearer and more glorious vision of Christ than I've seen in these pages before. And that, of course, should be our hope in every reading. But it isn't always the case. But as we've worked our way through, there's so much depth here about who Christ is and our relationship with Him. May God continue to use the investment of time and concentration that we've invested in this book to sanctify Eden Baptist Church. Let's pray to that end, even in the quiet of our hearts now. Now, God's Spirit has been teaching us in this book that Christ is the image of the invisible God, that He is the exact representation in physical flesh of all that God is. Christ is the Creator. He is the Sustainer of the universe. We've learned that He is the preeminent One over all creation. He is the cosmic conqueror of every earthly and otherworldly power. He is the sovereign Lord of the church for which He died and whom by His sacrificial death He has redeemed 
and he is reconciled to God. United by faith with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is now our living head. We have become a new man in union with him. He is our life. He is our new identity. We are eternally complete in Christ. Those who have come to saving faith in Him. We are complete in Christ. We have sung of that this morning. Indwelt by the risen Christ in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. We are complete in Him. So Paul contends then that we must never turn to ritualistic religious practices. We must never embrace religious philosophies or turn to religious experiences to complete us. We must never go there, for we are complete in Him. And when we grasp this reality, we set our focus on Jesus as our very life. It's a whole identity change. It's not something we simply do in our minds by mental exercise. But it is a reality we are coming to understand more and more by faith. I am a new creature in Jesus Christ. I come to act in faith upon that truth. And as we do, as we really grasp this, we realize that we have been liberated from the bondage to sin. And so we daily put to death the deeds of the flesh. We continue to put sin to death in our lives, not to earn standing with God, not to gain forgiveness, which Christ alone has won for us on the cross, but because we are truly new creatures in Christ. In this new identity, I do not long to sin, but I want to break free from it. I want to walk in, in Christ in the, as the person that I truly am in Him. So if we grasp the message of Colossians as true believers, we will never see ourselves the same way again. We'll never see Christ the same way again in all of His glory. But we will never see ourselves the same way again in Him. We will know that Christ is our life. That Christ is our identity. And the response then is that we rejoice to synchronize our lives with the agenda of the living and reigning Christ. We know that He is glorified in heaven as the King of kings and Lord of lords and that He will bring all things to final consummation in Him. So this is the message that Paul has zealously conveyed to the Colossian believers in this letter. He's labored throughout in the spirit of Colossians 1 and verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So those that were besetting the Colossian church, coming into them saying, there has got to be more religious ritual among you if you're going to really know God. You've got to listen to the visions that we've received and our spiritual experiences to truly know God. Paul says, don't listen. Don't let anyone look down on who you are in Christ. But in faith, walk in that 
vision. And now he puts the finishing touches on the epistle before sending it off to them. So we come to Colossians 4 today. And as we do, it's really important that we get again a good picture in our mind of the situation here. He has never met the Colossian believers, yet he loves them in Christ. When you have this new identity in Christ, you love people you've not met. You know who they are, you know what Christ has done in their lives, and you love them. And so, though he's not met them, he certainly had a part in their coming to Christ as Savior. Remember his very fruitful ministry in Ephesus. And from that beachhead for the gospel, the gospel spread out from there, and it seems that through Epaphras, a man that Paul met in that context, Epaphras takes the gospel to the Lycus River Valley and reaches three cities there with the gospel. Believers come to know Christ as Savior. So there at Colossae, and here are the three uh, cities you see on the map here. Colossae, and then to Hierapolis across the river, and to Laodicea, about 10 miles apart or so, 10 to 12 miles apart, these cities. And Epaphras has taken the message there, so Paul is very invested in what's happened. From his ministry in Ephesus, these places have come to embrace the gospel of Christ. Churches have been built up here. And Epaphras now, who is with Paul, who is imprisoned in Rome, I think, probably, was used by God to take the gospel to these people. So these words, as we come to the end of this book, let's look at it in the context of what's going on in their lives but let's look at it also in the context of what is taking place in the book of Colossians. Because if we're not careful, you ever been to a big event, maybe at this church, what do we do when it's over? We sweep it up, right? We sweep the floor and we clean off the tables and we put them away. The big event is not the cleanup. The cleanup's just the thing you get done afterwards, just part of the whole thing. It's a winding down. It's not all that important. It's got to be done, but it's not that big of a thing. If we look at the end of Colossians this way, I think we are really poor for it. It seems like the sweeping up after the big event, this glorious vision of Christ, this sense of our new identity in Him and who we are to be and how we are to live and how we are to see ourselves, and now He just comes, He's got some greetings. Don't look at it that way. Please don't see it that way. These final words are more than sweeping the floor after the main event. More than attending to final details. In light of the message of Colossians, these closing details carry a weight that far exceeds their surface meaning. Paul starts here with a few words about two men who travel with his letter to the Colossians. We find that in verses 7 through 9 of Colossians 4. He's going to talk to them about two men. They're coming with this letter from the Apostle Paul. He speaks of, first of all, verse 7, Tychicus. And notice what he says about him. He will tell you all about my activities. Come back to that in a moment. Now he, when I think of Tychicus, is a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. He's a fellow servant in the Lord. And I have, verse 8, sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. The description of Tychicus we find to be that of a beloved brother. 
That is, there's a shared identity in Christ with Paul. He's a faithful minister. We might look at the words there in English, minister and servant. They seem to be the same word. Two different Greek words. You may know the word diakonos, where we get our word deacon in the office. That's the word here, faithful minister. He's one who serves the cause of Christ. It stresses the fact that Tychicus was a trusted and effective partner on Paul's evangelistic team. It says here then, thirdly, he's a fellow servant. There's a different word, sundulas. Dulas, that word for slave. And they are in the Lord, in union with Christ. So their self-perception as leaders in the Christian church is one of deep humility. We are brothers, but together slaves of Jesus Christ. And we could not be happier. To be a slave of Jesus Christ is the greatest of all callings. Together we serve the Lord. So Paul is basically saying of Tychicus, he is an effective, he is a trusted, reliable, faithful man whose life is synchronized with the saving work of Jesus Christ. He knows who the risen Lord is and he is serving him day in and day out as a trusted partner in the dissemination of the gospel. What's his mission? Why is Tychicus coming? He lays some of that out. Twofold purpose. The one thing I want him to do is to inform you of my situation. He's going to convey information from the front line where Paul is, obviously in prison. He can't get out. So he's sending Tychicus to take this message, and he can't get on a cell phone. He can't connect on Facebook. He's got to send somebody to take the message all the way there, and that's Tychicus. Secondly, he's sending him to encourage your hearts. There's going to be a relationship between the two of you, conversations between the two of you, and my hope, I'm letting him go. He could be helpful to me. I'm letting him go so that he will build you up in the faith. This is the stuff of gospel enterprise. Now remember, the Colossian church... They've never met Paul. So why would they care how he's doing? Oh, Paul, they know, is their brother in Christ. They know that their lives are locked together into the larger story of what Christ is doing. They are Gentile fruit of the mission of Paul, although in a secondary manner. But he's their brother. They're involved in the redemptive work of the risen Christ in this fallen world together. They care very much about how Paul is doing. So Tychicus will speak to the church, relay the news about how Paul is doing, and that really in itself outweighs all other earthly affairs. When you know who Christ is, when you see the glory of his saving work, you care about the spread of the gospel. Every legitimate evangelist, everyone who is faithfully teaching Salvation in Christ, every such brother and sister is our friend. They're our friend. And we want to know how they're faring because they're involved in the grand enterprise. That's how they respond. Further, Paul knows the importance of watering seedlings in the faith. And so Tychicus is his man to go to these seedlings in Colossae and to water them, to nurture them, to encourage their growth in Christ. Second man that he references is Onesimus in verse 9. 
verse 9, and with him Onesimus, that is attending Tychicus, certainly the leader here in the way that this plays out, but with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. They're going to convey to you how we are doing. Onesimus will be part of the package. Now we can be relatively confident that this is the runaway slave who providentially met Paul in prison and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. What a story. What a fascinating story. If you've not read it, it's in the Bible. It's a very short read. You can read it this afternoon in a very short setting. The book of Philemon. I will tell the story of this runaway slave, Onesimus. What an amazing work of grace God did to providentially run into the Apostle Paul when you're running from having escaped as a slave. Now, don't think in terms of our nation's history. When you escape as a slave, you're breaking contract. You're doing something that's very shameful. Many slaves were able to rise to high responsibility in Greco-Roman culture. That you are breaking this contract. You are shaming your name. He's running away from his life and everything that he knows, leaving everybody behind, all of his responsibilities unfulfilled, apparently stealing money from his master. And he goes to somehow escape in the great metropolis of Rome, to just hide there amongst, amidst the many, many people. He runs right into the Apostle Paul. Isn't God's grace amazing? He comes to see, I am a sinner. Christ is the Savior. And he trusts Him as his Lord. So Onesimus ran away from Philemon, Paul writes, as a useless slave, but he would return as a useful brother in Christ. He's one of you. See that little phrase there? He's one of you. Put it together with who Onesimus is in the, in the, amidst these Colossian believers. He's one of you. Now socially, in that environment, there's no one that would want to say he's one of us. He's a runaway slave who has broken his relationship with his master. He has shamed a lot of people, left a lot of responsibilities undone. He's been a thief. Well, he's not one of us. Paul says, in Jesus Christ, he's forgiven, and he's one of you. Embrace him. And they'll tell you about everything that's taken place here. It's been an amazing story. Not only is he once an escaped slave, not only does he, it, is he in shame socially, but he is also a valued partner of none other than the Apostle Paul in the dissemination of the Gospel. There is redemption here in verse 9. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. He's a new creature in Christ. So receive him. Now at verse 10 through verse 14, we come to a second section. So these are the men coming with the letter. I want you to know who they are. You're looking for Tychicus, you're looking for Onesimus. Receive these men, they will be traveling with the letter. What he deals with now in verses 10 through 14 are greetings from those that will remain with him. So they are going to greet the church in Colossae. Again, don't look at this as sweep-up work. It's important. Let's read 
read it carefully. He introduces, first of all, in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Aristarchus, another faithful member of Paul's gospel team. If you put it together, all that he did in the New Testament, there's a man we don't probably know his name real well, but he was involved in a lot of the work that Paul did. He suffered for the gospel. This was a guy that was pretty sure he was going to die in Ephesus when they drug him into the theater, screaming against Paul and screaming in favor of their pagan gods. This man, Archippus, or Aristarchus, rather, was, was that man. He was part of that scene and attended Paul on his journeys and ended up in Rome in Acts 20 and verse 4. So Paul had partners outside of prison and he had partners who could minister to him inside of prison, whether in prison themselves or able and willing to visit him in prison. And he was grateful to have Aristarchus on his team who sends greetings to these Colossian believers. Secondly, verse 10 is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Who's Mark? Another story of grace. The cousin of Barnabas who infamously deserted Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Barnabas and Saul, the apostle Paul, joined together and they brought Mark along. They went first to the island of Cyprus. They ministered the gospel there and then they made their way across to the mainland and came to the city of Perga. We don't know what happened, but Mark just said on some level, I can't handle this anymore. And he left the team. And he left them in some trouble. You don't leave an evangelistic team like this. You trust one another. You depend on one another. There's protection you gain from one another's presence. There's one less head to count on the team. Mark betrayed them. And Paul didn't forget it easily. And so when the next missionary journey came up, Barnabas and Paul thought, we'll go out again. Let's take the gospel of Christ on another journey. And it came up, well, who are we going to take with us? And Barnabas said, well, let's take Mark. I think he's ready. He betrayed us back there in Perga. It's been a bad situation, but I I think he's ready. What did Paul say? Absolutely not. I can't trust this guy. He burned us once. He hurt us badly. He hurt our team. As we take the gospel of Christ, we've got to have people we can trust. No, I can't take him. And they had an argument, a battle. I would assume that they handled it in an appropriate manner as Christian men in Christ, that they weren't sinning in their argument with each other, but they could not come to agreement. Barnabas and Mark went off back to Cyprus And Paul chose Silas and went west with the gospel. And now we had two teams that had to split over this individual, Mark. So notice what Paul says here at the end of verse 10, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes. If he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome him. Paul had forgiven him. Perhaps the forgiveness, though complete, there was still a process of restoration. If he comes, welcome him. But he had come to trust him. And so as he writes to Timothy, finally, in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, he speaks of Mark as one who is useful. He's trustworthy. Paul does not put Mark in a box 
and throw away the key. He allows for this man to redeem himself and to be a trusted member of the team. So he sends greetings as well. In fact, he may come also sometime to visit them. And he mentions then in verse 11, Jesus, who is called Justice. Jesus, his Hebrew name, Justice, a Greek name. He, along with Aristarchus and Mark, are the only Jewish believers on Paul's team at the time. So we have Jesus called Justice. And so he adds, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So they spread the message of God's kingdom here, probably not so much the future millennial kingdom, though that certainly was a, was a topic in their preaching, but the rule of Christ as Savior of the church, Colossians 1.13. The key is that they were a source of comfort to Paul. Paul was no Lone Ranger stoic. He needed the comfort of partners in the gospel. He welcomed it, and he praised God for it. They provide me comfort in this risky business of proclaiming the gospel. And then verse 12, there's Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He also greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the work of God. He's one of you as well, probably a Colossian, native of Colossae, converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. What we do know from chapter 1 and verse 7, this is the man who took the gospel to the Colossians. He proclaimed the, the gospel there in that city, and the church rose up. He hadn't quit caring for them, had he? Verse 12, he's always struggling in your behalf in his prayers, agonizing in prayer. Two great quotes, let me share them with you from 1 John Eady. He says, In proportion to the fervor of one's affections will be the importunity of his petition. In proportion to the fervor of one's affections will be the importunity of his petition. In other words, how deeply moved we are for the care and nurture of other souls will translate into the zeal of our prayers. And F.F. F. Bruce has said very simply and how profoundly, praying is working. Praying is working. God gives you long life. He gives me long life. There's going to come a day when the only way we can serve the cause of Christ is to pray. Praying is working. Laying on your back as you await death and praying is working. Of course, this is a man who very energetically is also serving. We see the zeal of Epaphras' heart that the Colossians will stand mature and fully assured in the will of God is the content of his prayers. So there's a lot of false doctrine that's going about. There's not a knowledge of who Christ really is. And there's not a knowledge of who the believer is in Christ. And so he is praying with fervor and zeal that the enemy would not capture the heart of the Colossians. Fully assured is what he desires for them. That is to trust the completeness of their new identity in Christ and permit no one to dissuade them. Epaphras is their spiritual father. And there is nothing like being a spiritual father, a spiritual mother, someone who shares the gospel with someone else, sees them respond. There's nothing like that to deepen the intensity of your prayers. 
And that's what this man is evidencing here. He cares that these people thrive. And so he works in prayer for them. Verse 13, another, I bear him, or another point on, on Epaphras. I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. So this work, certainly in prayer, in, in fervent prayer as he is apart from them, but also in the proclamation of the gospel, also reached these two other cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. He had a tremendous ministry there. Verse 14, greetings are sent from Luke, the beloved physician who attended uh, Paul in many of his journeys, wrote the book of Luke, wrote the book of Acts, as does Demas. It's interesting that Demas gains no more print here. Perhaps Paul is a bit worried about him. But Paul will later write about this man. He's sending greetings now to the Colossian church, but Paul's going to eventually write this. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. We cannot determine why Paul says nothing more of him here, but tragically some gospel partnerships do not end well. Mark, there was a major problem, but he recovered repenting and becoming a faithful minister. Demas apparently never did. We can't know that for certain about what happened after Paul died, but he departed loving this world. This is Demas. What comes now in verses 15 and following are instructions for believers in the Lycus Valley, for these three churches, two in particular. But he says in request number one, so verses 15 to 17, we're going to look now at some instructions. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. That's instruction number one. We, I've sent greetings to you from these individuals. And I want you to speak with the church in Laodicea and to give greetings to them and greetings to Nympha and the church in her house. Probably, most likely, the same thing. A church in the house, in her house, in Laodicea. But Paul is certainly encouraging uh, fellowship here and also drawing attention to the apostolicity of his uh, writings, of his authority in their relationship. He says, greet Nympha in whose home the church meets. There are no church buildings for the first 200 years of the church. Some churches were maybe able to rent a hall or perhaps in rare occasions even use a synagogue. But for the most part, they had to meet in homes. That's where Christian believers met. And then there might be multiple churches scattered across a city and would have seen some self-identity as the believers from that city. But meeting in homes is the point, and that is what is happening here. So greet Nympha. She houses this church, perhaps a wealthy widow. Uh, we don't know why her husband's not mentioned. Perhaps he's just an unbeliever, and uh, he's not part of the church. But he sends greetings to her. In fact, the church in Colossae met in Philemon's home. So the, here we have partners in the gospel using their resources to house the churches. If you have a home, it reminds us, remember that it belongs to Jesus. Use it as if that were true. If you have a home, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, 
He has not given you that home to simply use for your own pleasure. He's given you that home. He's given me the home in which I live and for which I am very thankful. He's given that to us as a base of gospel enterprise. That's what it's for. That's why you own it. We see that here so evidenced. It's a place for the meeting of a home group. Our homes are places to invite the unsaved and neighbors to a place of location where we can minister to them. It's a place to take in a Bible study or some other church activity at which people gather for spiritual encouragement. It's a place where when we bring unbelievers, it may be little more than simply bowing our heads at the table and giving thanks to God. In our home, which has been given to us by God, we thank Him for the food which we believe has also been given to Him by us. If you'll just join us in prayer briefly. And we pray. We minister. We help. We nurture. We use it as a place of gospel advancement. His second request we find here in verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. I think that means a letter that it will, will come from there. Not that they've written it. Paul has written it. He wrote a letter to the Laodicean church and he wants the Colossians to read that letter as well. It will bring further edification. Request number 3, verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. We don't know really who he is. He's referred to in Philemon 2 as a fellow soldier. So we, should, we don't really know who he is. We don't really know why this reference is here. I, I think it's too much to think that it's a rebuke. But he clearly had an important ministry to fulfill. Perhaps was leading the church in Epaphras' absence. Whatever the case, he is to fulfill his ministry. There's another request that Paul sends. And then the final sign-off in verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. What a book. What an amazing book. Let me just provide a few moments a further reflection just on this end. We've kind of looked in reflection upon the whole message of the book at the start of our time together here today. But let's think, okay, it's not just mop-up time here. There's a lot going on in these verses. We've tried to get a sense of them. Here's the people coming to you. With the people on my team, these send you greetings. Here are some requests that I have. I sign off. But what we notice here, cannot miss, is the prominence of greetings. Greetings were really important to Paul. Greetings express regard for another person. At some level, there is a relational warmth when we greet others. It doesn't have to be, but often it is. And in the best sense of our greeting, in the best sense, our greetings say, you matter to me. I acknowledge the importance of our relationship. But in Christ, greetings take on a heightened meaning, don't they? When we set our minds on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, chapter 3 and verse 1, our greetings 
as believers are an expression of our identity in Christ. I greet you as one for whom Jesus died. We may not consciously think of that, but we should learn to do so. I greet you as one for whom Christ has died. And greetings, you ever thought of this? They're a sort of prophecy. They, because we're in Christ, everything that we do, the way that we live in this life is all looking forward to the final consummation in Christ. So our greetings are a prophecy. One day we will be received. One day we will be welcomed into eternal dwellings as glorified servants of Christ. There's a day, if you know Christ, you will be welcomed. You will be greeted at heaven's door. As believers, we tap some of that force when we simply greet one another. In fact, if we could for one moment perceive the glory of the person we're greeting someday when they are transformed into the likeness of Christ, we'd probably fall down on our knees in reverence with tears. We're not greeting mere mortals. We're greeting those who will be glorified in Christ and so prophesying of the day that they are welcomed into eternal dwellings. As we read the New Testament, you can't miss this in Paul. He thinks greetings are a big, big deal. Why does he think they're a big deal? Number one, humility. Greeting someone takes some level of humility. It's coming to their level. It's regarding them. It's not saying, I walk past and you bow down and I don't care who you are. It's saying, hi. Hello. How are you? He was a humble man, as great as he was. Secondly, he thought greetings were a big deal because he saw the believer's identity in Christ. He was indeed greeting those for whom Christ died. Christ regarded them this way. He's going to regard them. Thirdly, he loved people. And fourthly, our partnership as ministers of the gospel in a hostile world leads us to unite together and to recognize the importance of one another in this work. Greetings. Second thing that we see is just permeating this section, our oneness in Christ. This passage subtly demonstrates the unity of the body of Christ across all sorts of boundaries that would prove impossible to the lost that lead to wars, and lead to uh, fights and factions. But what do we see here? We see Jews and Gentiles as part of this enterprise working together, right? Isn't that who he's talked to? That got these guys of the circumcision, these other guys are Greeks, you know them, some of them grew up among you. We're all together on this team, Jews and Gentiles. What else do we see? Masters and slaves. Those who have high social status in that culture and those who have low social status in that culture. And what does he say of the slaves? They're one of you. In Jesus Christ, they are not inferior. In Jesus Christ, they're a brother and sister. We see here as well the wealthy and the poor. We have those that have enough wealth that they can house a church in their home. And we have a slave. We have men and we have women. 
And certainly much more could be expressed. But we see the oneness of Christ, the unifying force of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring people together. And that moves into the third emphasis, and that is gospel partnership. We see the importance of information back and forth and of encouragement in our relationships with one another. We are created as kingdom builders to unite together, to work together, to advance the cause of Christ. And in that, we thus share information and we encourage. I hope every missionary that comes into Eden Baptist Church would know these people care about me. Some of them we've hardly met or perhaps most of the church has never met. But may they come in and say, here there are brothers and sisters in Christ who care about the gospel. Passing information. Why do they care about Paul? Because they care about Christ. They care about the gospel spreading. We see the necessity of mutual trust and faithfulness, even in some of the failures of the individuals mentioned here. We see the exhausting and dangerous work of the gospel, including prayer, but Paul's in prison. He's in prison for sharing the gospel. It all reminds us, all of it, that the great commodity in the church of Jesus Christ is people. It's people. For whom Christ died, who are carrying the greatest message in the world. Therefore, we share information. We long to know about one another and to encourage each other. God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the strong. But He has chosen, if He has chosen you as His child, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior from sin and hell, then you are involved in the greatest enterprise in the universe. You are part of that work. And by God's grace, together we will see that. This great enterprise is to proclaim Him, Jesus Christ, as eternal God, come in the flesh, living a sinless life, crucified to pay the penalty of sin and to provide eternal forgiveness for sinners. He purchased these people as His own. He purchased us as His own people. He rose from the dead. He eventually will secure the kingdom for the Father. And that is the ultimate story. When we lock into that story, when we participate in that story, we are involved in the greatest enterprise in the universe. And so there is a network of believers that develops, that support one another, knowing about each other, encouraging each other, and rejoicing in this walk with Christ. And all we can do, if you have not come to saving faith in Christ, all we can do as a church is say, come, come to Him. He is not approving of who you are. That sense of conscience where you know that you have sinned and you know you've broken the heart of God, He agrees with that. He sees your sin. He knows where you have violated His law. He knows that you need to be reconciled to Him. The beauty is that in Jesus Christ, He is saying, I want to make you a new creature. If you want to live as the creature that you are, and you want to fit yourself 
before God by doing religious things, being a good person in comparison with others, maybe tapping some spiritual experience here or there, you're going to remain in a state of disapproval and judgment in God's eyes. But if you say, I need to become a new creation, I want to become a new creation, I want to have a new identity because I know I'm sinking. The beauty is that Christ calls you to Himself and says, come, I'll make you new. And for those of us who have come to experience that newness in Christ, we know that our old man is dead. We're not in Adam anymore. We're now in Christ. And in Christ, in that new identity, we truly live. And there is no greater enterprise in this world than to spread that new life in Christ crucified and risen. Lord, we come before you asking that you would deepen us in our faith, in our understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. And we pray that you would bring us to our knees in worship of him. Draw us wherever we are and whatever we need individually. Now by your spirit, make that clear. Deepen us as your people. Or bring us into the family of God through repentant faith in Christ crucified and risen. Do this work among us, we pray. Not by sensational human experience, but by a genuine work of your Spirit being poured out to cleanse souls from sin and to fill your people with grace, with goodness with love for others, and with a zeal to see the name of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed and embraced in this world. It's in his name that we pray this. Amen. Please stand with me and let's consider for a few moments in silence the word of God delivered to us today. 